You know, uh, I don't know if y'all realize this, but on this past Thursday, there was a 199th anniversary. And it was the 199th anniversary of the most catastrophic uh, volcano in recorded history. On April the 10th, uh, I guess it was 1815, there was a severe volcano in Indonesia. And it created what is infamously called the summer or the year without a summer. The year without a summer. Um, this eruption lasted one week. It killed 10,000 on one of the islands in Indonesia. And 80,000 others died eventually from starvation and disease related to the eruption. They estimate that 1.7 million tons of dust was put into the air, which equals 6 million atomic bombs. All right, that's what the, the eruption caused. And the dust reached the northern hemisphere where we are um, in the year 1816, which reduced the solar output, causing global cooling, which resulted in 1816, the year without a summer. And there was a lady who famously wrote a poem about that year, that summer, uh, a woman named Eileen Margway. In Alabama, it would be Eileen Marguet, but it's Marguet everywhere else. And she says, and I love this poem because it rhymes. I don't make sense of poems that don't rhyme. I don't know about you. Uh, but she said, it didn't matter whether your form or your farm was large or small. It didn't matter if you had a farm at all. Because everyone was affected when water didn't run. The snow and the frost continued without the warming sun. One day in June, it got real hot and leaves began to show. But after that, it snowed again and wind and cold did blow. The cows and the horses had no grass, no grain to feed the chicks. No hay to put aside that time, just dry and shriveled sticks. The sheep were cold and hungry and many starved to death, still waiting for the warming sun to save their labored breath. The kids were disappointed. No swimming. Such a shame. It was in 1816 that summer never came. Now, that year without a summer was due to the fact that the sun's rays were eclipsed by dust, by particles, and it had a devastating effect. All right? Now... There's an even more severe eclipse that we're looking at in Jonah. Jonah is a paradigm, an, an illustration, if you will. Though it happened in space and time, this is a historical document. But he is a parable of Israel's heart in the 8th century B.C. Israel was created to be a royal priesthood, God's treasured possession, his magnifying glass, if you will, to the nations of His glory. But because of their sin, because of their ethnocentricity, because of their idolatry, instead of magnifying God's glory, they were eclipsing God's glory. Okay? And when you eclipse God's glory, not only does it have a devastating effect on you, it has a devastating effect 
on everyone around you. Everyone in your kind of sphere of influence. We're going to see that tonight. Jonah, who is a parable of Israel's heart, a parable of many of our hearts, if you will, has eclipsed God's glory. And it has a very devastating effect on him and even on others as we approach Jonah chapter 1 tonight. Now, last week, uh, we saw um, that Jonah is neatly broken down into four chapters, 48 verses. And the first chapter, the emphasis, uh, you, can, you could say the major scene is on the sea. And you have in that particular chapter, Jonah running from God's will. And so the, the scene, the emphasis is on the sea. Jonah is on the sea and he is running from God's will. Now, in chapter 2, the emphasis is, in, or is on Jonah in the, uh, the belly of the great fish. And there, he is, you could say, submitting to God's will. <laughs> uh, he had to be brought to the, to the end of himself to do that. In chapter 3, the scene is in Nineveh. All right? And so, in Nineveh, uh, Jonah is fulfilling God's will. And then... Jonah ends in chapter 4 outside the, the, the city gates of Nineveh. And we have Jonah questioning God's will. Now, let me just betray my hand here. I believe Jonah wrote Jonah. You know, uh, it's far from certain. But I believe Jonah is written by a man, a prophet, who has been so broken over his sin that he just gets really vulnerable. And he shows you about his heart. All right? And that's what broken people do. Because Jonah's going to end, and Jonah is not portrayed in a positive light by the time you get to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. But I believe it was written by this man. And he is showing us how you can get to that place when you are centered on yourself, when you have idols, when you've lost sight of your purpose, and that is to magnify the worth and the glory of God. Now, last time we saw God's command to Jonah and God's jealousy for the nations. All right, we saw that in verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. Their evil has come up before me. The reason God is sending him to, uh, to Nineveh on one end is because he's jealous for his name among the nations. It's never God's intent just to save Israel. Israel was to be the custodian, okay, of the message. It was God's intent to save the nations. He wants his name uh, to be extended to the nations. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That is the heartbeat of the Old Testament. Uh, But Jonah had lost sight of that, as we're going to see, and we have seen. And so we see God's jealousy uh, to the nations. And then... We spent a little time in verse 3. We see Jonah's response to this call, his jealousy for himself. When you're not jealous for God and his glory, essentially uh, you're just betraying your hand that you have another jealousy. And it's jealousy for your own self. You either serve God or you serve yourself in some way. That's why Paul says in redemption through the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he saves us from serving ourselves, okay? So we no, no longer serve ourselves, but we serve him who gave himself up for us. 
And so we see that, and we spent a little time in verse 3, but we want to pick back up there tonight. So he is sent in there to Nineveh, and in verse 3 it says, But Jonah rose. Now, all is well at this point. It sounds like he's on the same track with God, but it says he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a believer. There's no doubt about it in my mind that Jonah was a believer. Uh, 2 Kings 14 is the only other place Jonah's mentioned in the Old Testament. We know Jesus mentions him, Matthew 12, Luke 11, Matthew 16. But the Old Testament only mentions him one other place, 2 Kings 14, and he was a prominent prophet in the northern kingdom. In fact, we likely can, can conclude he was one of the sons of the prophets. He, he studied at the feet of Elijah and Elisha. So he was a prominent prophet, a believer, okay? God doesn't call unbelievers to be prophets. Um, and so as a prophet... Jonah would have understood you can't flee from omnipresence. You can't flee from omnipresence. It's very likely he would have been very aware and conversant with Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So why, why and how... Is Jonah fleeing from the presence of God? Jonah is fleeing from the felt presence of God. What we would call his evangelical presence. All right? He is fleeing from the covenantal Shekinah kind of felt presence from God. From the place of prayer. From the place of service, if you will. Uh, from the appeal that God's presence makes on his conscience. Do you know people like that? Have you ever been there? Uh, you're a believer, but you just don't want people in your business. You don't want the people of God in your business. You don't want to even hear from God. You're just kind of cold. You, you've gotten hard. You know, John, uh, John Piper describes heaven as the place of God's special abode, okay? The, the place of God's special presence, all right? That is heaven. And, and he makes the argument that uh, even if we were to go to heaven as believers and, and get everything we could ever desire or want, okay? Well, if we were to go to heaven and all the things you could dream of having in this life, you know, friends and and, and material things, and, and all the pleasures you can conceive. He said, if we were to get to heaven as believers and, and receive all of those things, but God wasn't there, we would be utterly disinterested. We would be utterly disinterested and even bored, discontent. Now, if that is true, if that is true about the believer, and I believe it is, then those who are preparing for heaven are those who are increasingly centering upon God and upon His presence. That's the evidence of new life. That's the evidence of regeneration, all right? And, and, I'm, and sometimes I'm fearful that, that we force people to make a decision for Christ when they haven't actually been regenerated, 
when they actually haven't been resurrected spiritually because new life will evidence itself in this increasing longing uh, for Coram Deo, the Latin phrase for being before the face of God. Okay? Now, if that is true, the opposite is true as well. Heaven is the place of God's special abode, God's special presence. Hell is the place where God and his covenantal presence are absent. All right? That's what hell will be. And the people whose scripture guarantees will be in hell for all eternity are those who are unrepentantly disengaged and unconcerned about the presence of God. All right? Now, that is a very fearful thought when you think about the number of people who do not desire to to commune with God, whether individually or even corporately, people who are unrepentantly uh, in that place. And that's what makes this flight from God's presence so strange. This is a man of God. He is a prophet. He's a true prophet. For a believer to seek, to flee from God's felt presence is insane. It is utterly insane. It's utterly irrational. We expect that from the unbeliever. But for the believer, it is absolutely asinine to be in that place. And that's where Jonah was. And now he's going to in time repent. There's no doubt about that. But when, he, when we run from God as believers, we won't go to hell, but we will experience a little taste of hell. That's how good God is. Just like when your children rebel. You love them too much to allow them to stay in that condition. So you will afflict what you need to afflict so that they kind of turn the corner, okay? And that's what we're going to see in this, atten- uh, this account. Um, now, there are certain times when spiritual problems and trials come our way because we didn't understand the Word of God and therefore we didn't obey or apply the Word of God. And even in that ignorance, if you will, we're culpable. For example, in Ephesians 4, it says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them do the hardening of their hearts. If we have spiritual ignorance, it's due to hardening hearts. We are, in fact, in Hebrews, there is a sacrifice that is to be offered under the old covenant for the sins of ignorance. What are the wages of the sins of ignorance? Death. Okay? But this isn't one of those times. Here, the command of God is very clear for Jonah. And oftentimes for us, the issue is not clarity. The issue is our will is opposing God's very clear will. And God has, is exposing that for Jonah. God's will and Jonah's will are in conflict. Jonah has his plans and his ambitions, and they do not comport with God. You know, when I was in high school, uh, Fleetwood Mac had this famous song, You Can Go Your Own Way. And that became the anthem of the 80s. But my uh, parents' generation had their own uh, form of that song. Um, 
I did it my way, Frank Sinatra, all right? And you know, in fact, that song, if I'm not mistaken, is still the number one song that is played at secular funerals. Frank Sinatra's My Way. In fact, Heather and I were in a, at a funeral in Cincinnati a few years ago. They played that song as if they were, you know, giving tribute to the corpse in the casket. And I'm telling you, Jesus, the name of Jesus was not mentioned at that funeral. It was utter hopelessness. It was utter despair. They were having to make up stuff so that they can have some kind of vestige of hope. Well, that's where Jonah is. He wants to do it his way. And we saw last week, here's a man who, who by all accounts was a very reputable prophet. He would have been highly esteemed and he looked like he had it all together. And God says, you don't have it all together. Let me show you. And he gives him a command. And in that command, he, he exposes Jonah's idolatry, his deep-seated idolatry. And last week we saw God is very good at that. As believers, we're no, we're no longer under the, the, the dominion of idols. Because idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's very clear. Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom. What's an idolater? An idolater is someone who loves something else other than God in Christ more than they love God in Christ. Okay? And yet as believers, we have functional idols. Every day we we struggle with things or people that, that we look to inordinately. To find hope and and to find identity and acceptance and approval. And when we don't get those things, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get discouraged, we get anxious, we despair. All of these negative emotions and these negative emotions can always be traced back to a functional idol. Well, God exposes Jonah's idol with a command. He said, oh, you think you're this mature prophet? I'll show you're not as mature as you really think you are. Go to the Ninevites and proclaim my message. And when that command came to him, what comes out? Anger. Unrighteous anger. And so this had been the plan from the very beginning. They had just lost sight of it in their idolatry. In fact, his mentors, Elijah. You remember Elijah went to a woman of Zarephath and you know, ministered to her, first kings. And then Elisha uh, had also gone to Naaman and healed him, who was a Gentile, and, and, you know, ministered to him. And Genesis 12 makes it clear that Israel was to be a light to the nations. And so this wasn't new. I mean, this is not new. And, and, and that explains the, uh, the, the issues you have in many churches today when you start talking about doing missions. And they start pushing back on, on missions. And you're like, my goodness, it couldn't be any clearer. We're called to the Great Commission. And it's the same way with Israel. Israel was clearly to be the instrument of God's blessing to the nations. And they had lost sight of that. And so God's call to Jonah was not new. It was part of his grand plan. And he did not like it. Furthermore, Nineveh was an enemy nation. Let's let's make that very clear. Even up to this point, Israel had had to pay tribute to to Assyria. You know what tribute was? It's essentially this. You're going to pay me money or we're going to invade you. That's essentially what it was. Um, 
if you don't pay us money, in other words, taxes, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a tax that you pay to prevent invasion. That's when uh, Jehu was the king. And so Nineveh was not a beloved nation. And on top of that, Jonah's contemporaries, you know who his two contemporaries were in the northern kingdom, Hosea and Amos. Now, how do you, let me just take a sidestep here. How do we keep track with all these prophets? Well, during that time, the 8th century, you had four writing prophets. And the fifth one, if you count Jonah, if he wrote this. Who are they? Hosea and Amos, Malachi, uh, Micah, rather, and Isaiah. We call them the Ami prophets. Because when they proclaimed woe, the people said, Ami. All right? So here's what Ami stands for. The A and the H and the A is Amos and Hosea. They are preaching to the northern kingdom. All right? Amos and Hosea. You've read them lately? They were the depressed sort. Let's just say that. Uh, they, they just they got in your business. It was a very, very dark prophecies against northern kingdom. Um, the me, Micah and Isaiah, M-I, they, they prophesied primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so all four of these prophets are prophesying at the same time. All right? And so Jonah is in the northern kingdom with Hosea and Amos. He very likely knew these guys. Um, Amos was from the southern country. He, he was from the southern tribes, and he had migrated north to proclaim to the northern kingdom, just like I did. I was in Alabama, and God called me north to the Kentucky to proclaim to the northern kingdom here of Kentucky. Well, Amos was a fig farmer. He probably had a southern accent like I do. And, and so Amos um, and Hosea and Jonah were very likely uh, contemporaries and buddies, same century at least. And Hosea and Amos prophesy because of your apostasy, because of your idolatry, guess what's going to happen? Assyria is going to be God's axe, God's punishing rod for you. And now God is calling Jonah to go to the very people that his buddies are prophesying will serve as the punishing rod for Israel and proclaim the message. And one of Jonah's real problems, and we're going to see this in chapter 4, he says, That's why I was in haste to flee to Tarshish, Lord, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't want God to save these people. He, along with everyone else, hated these people. Uh, They were different than them. They were evil. They were wicked. And in fact, in 722 B.C., that's exactly what happens. The Assyrians come in and they absolutely annihilate the northern kingdom. And so there's there's several reasons why Jonah would not have wanted to go to them. Uh, Think about his reputation. Think about his reputation among the people. Nineveh would be something like we would consider the Taliban. All right? That would be the Taliban. And you imagine trying to go minister to the Taliban, love them with compassion. 
and loving kindness after what they've done to us? What if God used you to to forgive these people, to to save these people? Uh, Would he be seen as the traitor prophet? Very likely. He would have been seen as a traitor among his people. God was calling him to sacrifice his own reputation on the altar of ministry. That's a tough deal when you've got a great reputation. I mean, Jonah very likely took pride and found his identity and his reputation as a great prophet. And now his name's on the line. There was a great uh, early 20th century prophet named Alexander Wyatt who writes, When I watch the working of my own heart, this is what I am compelled to write. I am Jonah. He says, in the matter of my own reputation as a preacher, that is. For I used to say, let me die before I'm eclipsed by another in my pulpit and among my people. I fought with a Jonah-like fierceness against the remotest thought of my reputation ever being passed over by another preacher. And essentially, Jonah, his reputation was at stake. And though the circumstances differ... The disease remains the same for us. We may run from God because it may compromise some of the glories that we can have in this world or uh, glories we can have from other people. Let me just give you just a brief example for me. Um, Let me just say this. When I played for Alabama, I used to get a lot of phone calls from family and friends on a weekly basis. Now that I'm in the ministry... You think the rapture happened with these people. I mean, like, why, where'd they go? Where'd they go? And I had, I had some, let's just say, beloved ones in my life who felt like I was sacrificing so much potential to go into the ministry. All right? Um, you're going to seminary? As if that was just kind of some, like, advanced vacation Bible school or something, you know? And I had one person actually say... Why don't you get your doctorate at a real school? Yeah, I was told that. Um, And, you know, I gave up a company car. All of these things. And those things I struggled with. Man, I struggled with these things. Because of the flesh. Because of my desire for for human glory. And I still struggle. I got a buddy who texted me this morning. said, I'm praying for you and your service this morning and all these things. And I struggle with jealousy for this guy. Every time I talk to him, he's got a new job with a new raise. I mean, this guy lands on his feet weekly. Um, and, and, and it's jealousy, you know. There's this, this sinister desire for, for, for the world's vanities, the world's glory. I think there was something here with Jonah. God is calling him to go to a people that uh, is not only hated, he, he's actually going to obscurity. Remember, it's a 600-mile journey. It's not like he's just going to get on a plane and fly there and be back in a couple of days. Do you know how long it would take to, to, to travel 600 miles? And then only God knows what would happen once he gets there. And then he's got to travel another 600 miles back. All of this is at stake. There's probably the fear factor as well. You know, one of the only two books of the Old Testament or the Bible that's devoted to pagan nations is the book of Nahum. Do you know that? The entire book is devoted to Assyria. Now, why is that? Well, it just reminds us. God's more interested than just Israel in the Old Testament. 
God is interested in the nations. All right? He loves the nations. And so he devotes an entire book of the Old Testament to the nations, Nahum. And listen to what it says in Nahum chapter 3 about these people. Woe to the bloody city. That's pretty serious. Uh, Nineveh is described as the bloody city. I mean, the Taliban had nothing. These people were so creative with their torture. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. P-R-E-Y. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain. Heaps of corpses. Dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. It's the kind of people God was calling him to. Frank Page in his commentary on Jonah tells us that they were known for their brutality. They would tear off the lips of their victims. They would flay them alive and make piles with the victims' skulls. And God is calling this man to go pronounce judgment on them. There had to be fear. There was hatred. There was this desire to maintain his, his name, his glory. All of these things were at play. And we fear far less in our mission, don't we? And God wasn't impressed with Jonah, and he's not impressed with us. And so, as we're making our way to South Africa, if fear is your issue, do you know how utterly and fundamentally and, ir- let's just say, infinitely irrelevant that is to God as an excuse? It is absolutely, infinitely unimpressive to God. And so, if you're scared of planes, forget about it. Get on the plane and go, all right? Um, God is not impressed with his fears, all right? And trust me, he had more to fear. But at the heart of the matter was idolatry, wasn't it? That's always the problem. Every sin can be traced back to the idols, all right? We saw that last week. Now notice, he went down. Notice, he, it says that uh, he rose to flee... He went down to Joppa. That's going to be used several times in this passage. You can see it again in verse 5 where it says, uh, and we won't be to verse 5 tonight, I can assure you. He went down into the ship. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, that is a euphemism for death in the Old Testament. And so when the writer is saying he went down, the Old Testament reader with a Hebrew kind of worldview, recognizes that language. It's a euphemism for death. This suggests that every step away from the revealed will of God is one step closer to going down to death. All right? That's, that's the language there. Tarshish. Uh, he's on his way to Tarshish. This is in Spain. Uh, 2,000 miles away from his home place. Or actually 2,000 miles away from Nineveh. um, Or Palestine, rather. In other words, this is the opposite direction. He is going in the exact opposite direction 
as he is called to go. Interestingly, Tarshish is one of the places in Isaiah 66. Listen to this, verse 18. That's very interesting to me. He says, I know... By the way, Isaiah wrote at the same time. This is the, you know, he's a contemporary. He's just in the southern kingdom. All right? He says, 66, 18, I know their works, their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Get that? God's heart is for the nations. The time has come. He's prophesying. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations. He is sending survivors to the nations so that God would reveal His glory to these nations. To Tarshish. Tarshish is one of those nations. And then he goes on and says, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. So Jonah is headed to a place that does not know God, that has not heard God's name, and has not seen God's glory. All right? You think that's intentional? This is a believer who does not want to be around other believers. You know people like that? Have you ever been like that? You don't want any part of it. You don't want to be around the religious people. Those legalists getting in my business. But let me just tell you, we don't have time to do it tonight. Some of you won't be back here next Sunday. Are y'all coming back next Sunday night? Okay. I was just kidding. <laughs> I'll just play it. You're not going to fly back for this? I mean, this is a special time. Yeah, tell you. <laughs> here, here's what's interesting. We're going to see these sailors. He gets on a boat. And these sailors are headed for Tarshish. And we're going to see that this reluctant, rebellious prophet in his rebellion is going to lead these sailors to faith in Yahweh. All right? That, that's what's remarkable. I'm getting ahead of myself. But God's going to get his gospel to Tarshish. He's going to do it through these sailors who are converted to him. And they're going to be converted through a disobedient, rebellious, idolatrous prophet. God's going to get his glory. And so Isaiah is going to be fulfilled. Tarshish has not heard his name. Tarshish has not beheld his glory. Well, guess what? He's going to get on a ship headed for Tarshish, filled with pagan mariners, sailors, and those sailors are going to be converted through this reluctant prophet, and they're going to go to Tarshish, and God's going to get his glory there. It is absolutely remarkable how God does his, his work, okay? But that's another sermon for another day. Um, now, traveling to um, Nineveh from Galilee, where he would have been, would have required him to go east. Rather, he is now going north and west, okay? And there he is going to, notice it says, pay a fare. Um, he's going to pay a fare and get on this, uh, this boat. Now, what's remarkable here is this progression of language. Notice... It says, John arose, note the verbs, he rose to flee, he went down to Joppa, he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, and everything seems to be working according to plan. 
Jonah has not broken any laws. He's a law-abiding citizen. And sometimes we think of a person is a moral law-abiding citizen. All is well with that person. Do you know that you can be a moral law-abiding citizen and be in utter rebellion to God? That's Jonah. This guy hasn't broken any laws. He paid the fare. He is legally on that ship. There is nothing illegal about what he's doing. And he is in outright rebellion to God. But I'll tell you what else is interesting about this particular passage. All seems to be working out for him. I mean, he's headed for Tarshish and there's a boat waiting on him. And sometimes we mistake our circumstances for the blessing of God, okay? He seems to have everything in place. Um, he, he, he looks for a boat. There's the boat. And it looks like that maybe God has changed his mind about Jonah's uh, plan or his plan for Jonah. There's a boat waiting on him. And sometimes I think that we misread God's will in the process. Because this is not the providence that Jonah thinks he's getting. Uh, God has not changed his mind. Uh, God is not offering him another, another option to his clearly revealed will. This boat is going to become a painful instrument in Jonah's life to bring about repentance. But listen to what William Banks writes. When a person decides to run from the Lord, and he's talking about believers here, Satan always provides complete transportation facilities. So all things are working out right now. He's gotten on the boat, and there's this progression of verbs that I just showed you. And so maybe Jonah's rationalizing like we have before. Maybe I missed the call. Maybe I missed what God was saying because things are smooth right now. Things are working out. Things are going as planned. No, not so fast. And I think this is a crucial lesson for us. We live in a day of mystics, people who try to discern God's will by their circumstances and by what they feel, what God told them on the Spirit. When, if you were to press it, they, these people never read their Bibles. They don't know the Word of God. And so they're seeking to discern God's will simply and merely by their circumstances. Well, if you take that road, then it looks like Jonah's in the will of God because everything is working out according to plan. But Jonah's sin here teaches us not to be guided by our circumstances when we're refusing to be guided by God's word. God never uh, blesses disobedience. And um, he never conflicts with his word. And so we see God's uh, jealousy for Jonah. Or uh, God's jealousy for the nations. Uh, we're going to end tonight in verse 4. I can't believe we only get two verses here tonight. At this rate, we'll, Jonah will be... We will move faster. I'm just trying to lay a foundation here. We're going to see his jealousy for Jonah himself. Notice verse 4. But the Lord hurled. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship. The one that Jonah probably thought God had provided for him. So that he could remain in rebellion. Threatened to break up. Now, Jonah, this book is going to leave no doubt who's in control. 
Who hurls the, the wind here? The, the, the Lord hurls this great wind. There's that word gadol, great. It's used 14 times. Everything's great in Jonah except Jonah's character. God sends Jonah to the great city of Nineveh. He, he hurls this great wind. Um, but the word hurled here is going to be used four times in this chapter. You cannot outrun God. It's that clear. Now, if you're not a believer, you're not under the disciplining hand of God. You, you may flourish for 70 years. That's what Psalm 73 is all about. But if you're a believer, you cannot remain in rebellion without His disciplining hand coming on you. All right? Because He loves you that much. As I said this morning, it's not because He's turned His face away from you. It's because He's turned His face towards you. Okay? The reason this happens is because He loves Jonah. He hurls this great wind and it's mercy. It is absolute mercy and grace because it is futile and utterly destructive to rebel and eclipse the, God, the glory of God. When you consider the fact that He's omnipresent, what does omnipresent mean? He's everywhere, right? He's sovereign. What does that mean? He's in control of everything. He can hurl a wind. How do you hurl a wind? You don't hurl a wind unless you're God who created the wind. So he is, he is sovereign, he is omnipresent, and he is jealous for his glory in every believer's life. That's what James 4 says. He is jealous for the spirit that is within you. He is jealous that you turn to him and live for his glory and purposes. And he will pursue you until you relent. And it's for your good. And this is for Jonah's good as well. And so that's the negative lesson. A true believer will never succeed at fleeing. You just won't. If he can hurl a wind, trust me, you cannot flee. The positive lesson is that God's mercy is extraordinary. I mean, think about that. He spares no expense in pursuing us. No expense. Because he knows that which fails to magnify his glory in your life will be destructive to you. He created you for his glory, which means you can only flourish when you live for that. Imagine a fish created for an aquarium or, or, or a body of water, the fish says, I want my freedom. And he flops out of the water and he has his freedom. But he's on his way to death. Why? He was created for the water. And in the same way, we were created to magnify the glory of God. And so when we eclipse his glory in rebellion and sin and idolatry, it destroys us. And so it's God's magnificent mercy that he would hurl a wind at you. I don't know what the wind would be. It's going to vary according to each person. But he's going to hurl it. Do you think it would have been nicer of God to leave Jonah alone? <laughs> I think Jonah probably thought that at the time. You, you're much more kind if you would just leave me alone right now. Hurling a wind? Come on now. But as C.S. Lewis said in his wonderful book, Surprised by Joy... 
His compulsion is our liberation. What do you think that means? His compulsion is our liberation. It goes back to that hymn that we read last week. Are you familiar with this hymn, Scott? Make me a captive and I shall be free. It's a 19th century hymn. Go and blank on the guy's name. Make me a captive, Lord, and I shall be free. That's what God is doing. That's where true freedom is found. So this storm, and it, it, let me just tell you, all of you have been through them. There are storms of perfection. Those are the kind of storms we experience just because God is at work conforming us to Christ. And it's not because of any particular sin in your life that you experience that storm. You may be Keith Catchpole and, and he is a tremendous worker, but one day he's told he's laid off. That's a storm of perfection. It wasn't due to lack of uh, diligence on his part. He just had a storm of perfection. There are storms of perfection for every believer, but there's also storms of correction. It's the kind of storm that Jonah was experiencing. You can minimize those storms just by obedience, all right? And those storms are meant to liberate us. And so this was extraordinary mercy on God's part. That he would hurl what, what looks to be kind of over the top for us, hurling a wind. Uh, it, it, it's extraordinary mercy on God's part that he would do that. Because submission to him is the only true freedom. And God will spare no expense at doing that, won't he? In fact, the most extraordinary expression of his mercy is going to be found in the one in whom Jonah points. And we know that he points to the Son of God because Jesus told us that, right? Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 16. And just as that storm interrupted Jonah's rebellion, God sends the Messiah. And here's how he interrupts our rebellion. The Messiah goes through the storm for us. He experiences the storm of God's wrath. He takes God's wrath He experiences God's wrath for those of us who are much more like the Ninevites than we are Him. Who are much more conformed to the law of the Ninevites than we are the law of God. Much more like Jonah than we are the true prophet of God. And He experiences that storm for us, intervening in our rebellion so that we could, like Jonah, be brought to repentance to the place where we recognize where human flourishing is found in magnifying the name of God. And so Jesus comes as our representative man. He experiences the storm for us. We'll look at that more in the next few weeks so that we could have the redemption by the mercy of God, that very mercy that Jonah so despised. Let's pray.